Amen. Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us so well this morning. And good morning to everyone who is here, and especially good morning to those of you who are maybe new with us this morning or you're visiting for the Biblical Counseling Training Conference. Um, We're delighted to have you here to fellowship with you this morning. Um, And we're excited to have you with us all week, um, just learning more about God's sufficient word and how we can use it um, to minister to others. So as has already been said, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning, and you can find that on page 150 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. And this year we are going through a series of faith called Building on Our Heritage. So as we seek to build upon the 60-year heritage of Faith Church, so to grow our church on a solid foundation, we're spending this year walking through the exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So two weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, we started with some background Um, some unlikely and unique nature of God building his church coming out of a place like Ephesus. So if that were happening today, it would kind of be like God was doing this in a place place like New York or Hollywood. So a place where we would find it difficult, um, where we would actually seem that it would be difficult for the gospel to flourish. In fact, we, in our imagination, we would probably better picture... um, an image like Sodom and Gomorrah happening in one of these places. Um, But God chose to use um, the city of Ephesus to really bring about a lot of the gospel um, and spreading it to a lot of people. And that's one thing that we should keep in mind is when we think about New York or any place like this, um, we shouldn't be so naive to think that God is not able to do great works in those places. When in truth, we do see amazing stories of God's grace and the spread of the gospel even in some of the most worldly places um, on this planet. So churches grow in the center of Manhattan. Celebrities and even athletes come to know the Lord and they boldly proclaim their faith um, in this world and sometimes at a great cost to them. And that's what's happening here at Ephesus as well where the gospel is spreading like, like wildfire in that region. And if that was the result, I think it's well worth our time to slow down and to learn what it was um, that was being taught. And so that's our study in Ephesians is going to last um, for much of this year here in 2024. And, and this letter divides nicely into two sections. We've already mentioned this, but it is note, it is worthy of mentioning again that this book can really be split in half. So the first three chapters are almost like gospel doctrines. So that they proclaim God's cosmic plan to unite everything under Christ and reconciling us to God and to one another through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to the proclamation of the revealed mystery of the gospel available to all peoples and to every nation. And if you want a simple phrase to remember, these are the gospel indicatives. So the truth about what is the gospel. And then you may remember that as, I also, as has also been said about um, this letter, as it's to the church, and, and the remaining chapters, verses four, or chapters 4 to 6, are focused on the life within the church. So within the teaching on the unity and the growth of the members of the church. Not a numerical growth plan, but a spiritual growth plan. So how can the Ephesians apply the gospel indicative to their lives is really the, the last three chapters of this book. And Paul teaches how God can help us to change and how God commands us to live individually, in marriage, in families, at work. And finally, um, the provision of God to help us withstand the attacks of this world and of the evil one. 
And I know we're just getting started um, in this book, but I'm excited um, to see all that God will do to help us build on our heritage and grow together as a church in this year. So far, we, so far we've looked at a few phrases here in the first, bo- the first chapter of Ephesians. So we've looked at how God has said we are adopted, how we are saints, how we are blessed. And then last week, Pastor Oakwin was here, and he shared with us the truth of predestination. And so what a glorious story of God's love for us that we were able to hear last week from Pastor Oakwin of how God has predestined us to be um, his people. And this was just the beginning of our series, um, Remembering Our Identity as One in Christ. And we're continuing that today. So if you're not already there, open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, which is on page 150 in the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. And if you're re- using the Bible um, in, in, um, in the chair in the front of you, like I said, it's in the back section. And our topic for today is, Ephesians, is, is forgiveness. So follow along with me as I read in Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to be reading verses 1 to 14. And this will cover many of the, the phrases we've already discussed and some of the ones that we're going to be going over in the next coming weeks. So Paul writes and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he also just as, he, uh, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to all the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ things in heaven, the heavens, and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed within him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And so today we're going to be studying the concept of, the, of forgiveness, remembering that we are forgiven. And now before we dive into talking about forgiveness that believers have in Christ, it's important to understand what forgiveness is. So what does it mean for someone to be forgiven? 
So forgiveness is a term used to indicate the pardon for a fault or offense. Or another way to put it is that forgiveness is to excuse um, from payment for a debt which is owed. So two common examples in our world is a governor or a president can pardon a criminal. So if a criminal has committed crimes against the state, the governor can pardon them. So he can write that off. Or if a criminal has committed um, crimes against the federal government, the president can actually write that off and say, you know what, we're not actually going to hold that against them anymore. Another way um, to view this is that of a debt. So if someone owes someone else money, it can be a lot of money, or it can be just a little bit amount of money, the person who is owed the money can choose to forgive the debt. So that means to write it off, to say, you know what, this person no longer owes me anything, I'm going to write it off, and we're going to say that they no longer need to pay this money to me. So when God says that in Him we have the forgiveness of our trespasses, our debts, according to the riches of His grace, I think that it's worth stopping to understand what forgiveness means and what, to find out what it means in our passage today. So when we look at our passage today, we're going to look at three characteristics of God's forgiveness. And I believe that by the time we're finished, we will see that these three characteristics will require a response from each and every one of us who is here today. So because within these characteristics, we will find the truth about ourselves and the truth about God, which we must honestly consider that we might respond to what God is showing us today in his word. And the first characteristic that we must acknowledge about forgiveness is that forgiveness is universally needed. So to make a bold and comprehensive statement like this, I think it's appropriate to make sure that we're talking about the same things. So let's start, and we'll take a thought back and start to the, and go to the starting point. So forgiveness, for forgiveness, there needs to be something that's forgiven, obviously. There needs to be a debt that needs to be paid, or there needs to be, for example, like we were talking about in a pardon, a crime that is owed. Um, so in our circumstance, the debt that is owed must be a reason why something has been taken, so an offense must have occurred, and a, or a transgress, transgression against another. And that transgression is our sin. So in this case, and in all cases, our transgression is against God himself. And in God's perfect justice, he can't just look the other way. Meaning can't, God can't just look at our sin and say, oh, you know what, I'm not even going to look at that right now. I'm just going to dismiss that and pretend like that's not even there. That would be like if every now and then in our world there will be a high-profile criminal trial that appears on TV or appears on the Internet. And imagine if someone has committed many heinous crimes, and it's very obvious that they've committed them. Sometimes it's even on tape. And what? imagine if the judge were to hear the prosecution, the judge were to hear the defense, and the judge would just say, you know what, I've thought about all these things, and even though it looks like they're guilty, we're just going to forget it. We're just all going to go home. We're just going to write this off. If the judge were to do that, everyone would say, well, that's not a good judge. Judges shouldn't do that. A good judge will punish those who are guilty. So a good judge has justice in mind. And so that's important when we're thinking about God, because God is a God of justice, and God is a God that is good. So where, there's, where there is sin, there must be a response from God, because God is a good God. And where there is sin, there needs to be forgiveness in a biblical sense. And I think we can all agree where sin began. So Adam and Eve in the garden had everything they needed, and yet they chose to believe that they deserved something more. 
So the one thing which God had warned them not to eat, they ate, and thus sin entered the world. And now if you're here today and you're saying, yeah, but aren't those just stories at the beginning of the Bible? Aren't those really not true? Or aren't those just kind of stories to kind of give us an idea of something? Well, that's definitely not what we believe. We believe that all of the Bible is inspired, that it's true. And if you have any questions about that, we would love um, to talk with you and sit down with you um, to explain why we believe the entire Bible is true and why we believe God intentionally has created the world in the way in which he did. Um, And so in the beginning of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve, and Adam disobeyed, and thus sin entered the world. And what does that mean for me? Well, that means that through Adam, all have sinned. So the first characteristic of God's forgiveness is telling us a truth about ourselves. Romans 5.12 says it this way. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now we could really go into a deep Um, study of theology of what this means, because Adam sinned. You and I are sinners at birth, even before our first breath of air. But let me try to simplify it. So Adam's sin is imputed to us, or that is, it's inferred upon each and every one of us who are united to him, because he is the representative of all humanity. So thus, Adam's sin is our sin. So Adam's guilt is our guilt, and we come into this world with a sinful nature and a debt that's to be owed. Because Adam is our representative. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For in Adam, as in Adam, all die. But there is hope even in this passage. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. That is, all who are in Christ. Now there is hope right here at the beginning of this passage, or at the end of this passage. But it must start with the understanding that forgiveness is universally needed because sin is universal. So though God cannot sin, and all God's creation was originally good, we must acknowledge that in the goodness of God's creation, a part of being created in the image of God allowed for mankind to have a will independent of God, and the freedom to make the choice to worship and obey God, or to choose to seek to try to be the authority in our own lives. Meaning God created man without sin, yet sin entered man through Adam. Many believe that since God is all-powerful, that God is to blame for sin, but that is false. That is not true at all. The origin of sin is in the hearts of men, and it is not on the parts of God. The Bible is clear that God is not at fault for man being sinful. And God was also not surprised by our sin, because it was, as we'll see, God's plan for his glory has already written to address the issue of sin, And the sin that is in all of us, because none are innocent. And Paul writes this in Romans chapter 3. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. So not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. When we limit our language here to simply talking about innocence, we might not completely understand this whole truth. So the Bible teaches what we call total depravity of man. So to to describe the pollution and the corruption of sin that is passed down from Adam. So total depravity is what that's called. And what this means is that left to ourselves, our sin infects every part of us, and we are completely incapable of living a life that is pleasing to God. None is righteous, not even one. 
Now, we're not as simple as we could be, but sin affects our entire being. So total depravity is often misunderstood to think or to say that man is as sinful as they could be. Well, that's not true, and even we could sit here and imagine ourselves being more sinful than we are now or doing more wicked things. And even people through history, you could imagine them even being more wicked. It wouldn't be hard to imagine that, but total depravity, I think a helpful illustration to think about this is if you go to a restaurant and you ask for a glass of water, oftentimes a waiter will ask you, would you like lemon with your water? And so you say, yes, they'll come by, and they might give you a lemon. Well, if you were to take that lemon and you were to squeeze it into your glass, is the entire glass now lemon? Well, no, right? There's a lot of water in there, but now it's some form of mixture of water and lemon. But at the same time, how much of the glass has lemon in it? All of it. So we might not be as sinful as we could be. However, every single faculty that we have is affected by sin. So that means our minds, um, that means our bodies, all of us is affected by a sinful nature. So left to ourselves, we might try to define sin in our favor so we might not look so bad, but it's very clear that from God's point of view that sin affects the entire man. And John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, at its core, sin is a violation of the Creator. So creation relationship. Man exists only because God made him And man is in every sense obligated to serve his creator. So sin causes man to assume the role of God and to assert autonomy for himself apart from the creator. And the most all-encompassing view of sin's mainspring, therefore, is the demand for autonomy. So we often use this phrase in our children's ministry that sin is anything we think, say, or do that displeases God. And to bring a deeper understanding to all of this, when I answer this this question, what is it that is not pleasing to God? So anything where we are seeking to choose ourselves rather than choosing to submit to his authority. So if you say something to me that I don't like and I choose to lash out in anger, I'm choosing to disobey God. If my wife does something that I don't like or takes care of the home in a way that for some reason I don't like it that day and I choose to manipulate or control her in a sinful way, what I'm doing is I'm choosing to disobey God. If your parents are asking you to be home at 9 p.m. and you choose to be home at 3 a.m. or even just 9.30, you're choosing to disobey God because you're not honoring and obeying your mother and your father. So we can begin to see how sin is inherently part of us all, and how it, we, in, with our sin, we have a demand for autonomy. And that's because none of us are innocent. And Romans 3 as well puts it this way. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And that's because sin has consequences. So the consequences of our sin ring, sin ring loudly throughout the biblical narrative. And because there is sin, God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. And this was not the full penalty of sin in the sense that God said that they would surely die that day, but they didn't. Now, they did die one day, and the consequence for us is death. But the consequence, uh, more than that, was that there would no longer be a perfect creation, that man would no longer have a right relationship with God. And that seems pretty steep if you don't really understand what the Bible says about these things. You know, I've done a lot of wrong things, but I'm not sure that I've deserved death. That's what many people say. Well, some of you, I'm sure, 
when you're in the car or on the internet, you'll listen to radio finance guys, so financial managers. There's tons of different radio programs now that um, it's someone on the radio that, that people can call in and they can ask them for financial wisdom. And every now and then you'll have someone call in if you're listening to one of these shows and they'll say, hey, so-and-so, I have $16,000 in debt because I got a car, because I have a little bit of student debt. What can I do to get out of debt? And the person says, you know, well, live a self-controlled life. Don't spend money on lavish things. Um, save and spend, and before you know it, you'll be out of debt. It's pretty simple. But sometimes someone will call, and I was listening at one point, and someone called into this radio, and they said, I'm 29 or 30 years old, and I'm a million dollars in debt. And you could hear the guy on the radio just be like, I didn't hear that right. You're a million dollars in debt? And they said, yeah. I said, what is this from? Well, I did go to school, or my spouse and I went to school, and we took a lot of student loans, yada, yada, yada. And so he said, so you're telling me that you have a million dollars worth of student debt. Well, not exactly. I also bought a house, and I bought these cool cars and all this stuff. He's like, okay, so you're saying you have a million dollars of student debt, and because you bought a nice house and you bought all these lavish cars, that's your million dollars worth of debt. And they say, well... Mostly, I also have a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of credit card debt. Um, and so you can imagine the guy on the radio is thinking, okay, well, you can get out of debt, but it's going to take you a long time. Like you will be able to get out of debt at some point in your life if you live a self-controlled life and if you um, choose to use your money in a wise way. But it's going to take you a long time to get out of debt. Now imagine if you owed trillions of dollars. You would never be able to pay that back. Public service announcement, most of you do owe trillions of dollars, but we're not going to go into that today. Um, But the idea is that if you owe that much money, there is no way that you're going to be able to get out of debt. You're in a hole so big that there is no way for you to get a shovel big enough to dig your way out of that. And that's how we should view our sin. Yet it's because of our sin that there is a broken relationship with God. So Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, and the consequences of our sin is our separation from God. Or as the Bible puts it, we deserve hell. We deserve punishment from God. So when we're born into this world, it is our old and corrupted self that will reveal its sinful, self-centered nature over and over again without Christ. So our condition at that time is not one of life and happiness. Um, Ephesians 2.1 describes it more accurately. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The consequence is a broken relationship with our Creator. But it's also a broken relationship with other people. See, this out of, out of this broken relationship with God, many things spill over into this. So we also have broken relationships with those around us. So a father who comes home only to expect the entire household to serve him, and he responds in a simple way when he expe- his expectations are not met, well, the relationships in the home will be broken. Or if a wife who sinfully worries about finances and seeks to control the spending and will not follow or even ask for her husband to lead, the relationship in that house is broken. And also a teenager who demands that they get what they want from their siblings and from their parents, well, that relationship is broken. We could go on and on and on because this brokenness is inevitable in this world because sin is inevitable. 
And it doesn't just stop there. It also stops, or it doesn't just stop there. It continues on that we have a broken relationship with creation. Well, what does that mean? Well, Genesis 3 actually gives this picture. It says, God said, then to Adam, he said, because you have, sin- you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sin has a cost. It breaks our relationship with God, it breaks our relationship with others, and it even breaks our relationship with the creation. And because of this brokenness, we do deserve death. For the wages of sin is death. Death is the debt we all owe, and only through death can our debt be paid. Before we move on to this next characteristic of God's forgiveness, though, I do want to ask, have you acknowledged your sin, and do you believe this about yourself? That you really do owe a great debt to God because you have sinned against Him. That you've, trans- you've transgressed against a holy God and that you do deserve death. You do deserve punishment. If you would answer that question with anything but a yes, then I do understand. If you don't know that or you don't understand that or you disagree, we would love to meet with you. So either I or one of the pastors or even a biblical counselor at our church would love to sit down with you and talk about what does it look like to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? And also, what does it mean for um, people to be sinners? What does that look like? And what does it look like for me to have a right relationship with God? And that's because forgiveness, we believe this, has exclusively one source. Only God the Father can forgive. And because God's sovereignty and his authority over all creation, including me, he is the only one who can grant forgiveness. And we can sing praise because of who God is. Excuse me. So who, Micah Micah 7 says this, it says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. There is no other like our God who is able to forgive sins. So he is the creator, and he is sovereign over all. He is good, and he is just, and he is the only one who has the right and the ability to forgive. Psalm 130 says it this way. It says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. But knowing these things does not always bring us into God's court seeking forgiveness. With all of these writings of the law and the prophets, including the last two verses, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law in Israel, all agreed that there was a need for forgiveness, and even who could forgive sins. In this sense, so frequently we read in the Gospels that the religious readers were thinking to themselves, or even saying aloud, who can forgive sin? 
or even calling Jesus a blasphemer. In Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus declared to the paralytic, take courage, your sins are forgiven. And then to prove that he had the power to, to forgive the sins, he healed the man. Well, how could Jesus declare that sin had been forgiven? It was because only he has the ability, and God, has the, God is the only one that has the ability to forgive sins because he is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. But this man's healing alone was, does not declare the good news to you and me. His healing and forgiveness were part of the revelation of who Jesus is, that we might come to believe that we would seek him for the forgiveness of our sins as well. So my debt is like the trillions of dollars. I can't, oh, I can't pay it back. How could one man pay any debt like that? Well, it's only one man who owns trillions of dollars in that sense, that it is Jesus Christ. Because it's only through Jesus Christ can the Father be satisfied. The only reason why Jesus can pay for my infinite penalty is because Jesus is an infinite person, unlike me. He is God himself. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. It says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So think back to the statement about Adam's sin that was imputed to us all. You know, I don't like that statement because it means I'm guilty. It's not a great statement that Adam's sin is my sin. I'm guilty because of um, that Adam is my representative. And left alone, there's no answer to that. But by the grace of God, that's not alone. So this statement in 2 Corinthians says, God who is rich in mercy made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's another imputation. What does it mean for that God made Jesus sin? So it is a funny way to say it. It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Well, we know what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that Jesus is a sinner or was a sinner in any sense. No, not at all. But what it does mean is that God treated Jesus as if he was a sinner. So God treated Jesus as if he lived my life so that I might be treated as if I lived Jesus's life so that I could have the righteousness of God in him. And it's this news that we have been waiting for because the Father's forgiveness, the imputed sin nature that we have received in Adam and revealed daily from our sinful hearts, God has covered over by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So my position before God is no longer that of a sinner, but my position before God is that now of righteousness. Now, my practice is not completely righteous. I still sin, and God is continually changing that every day for all of us who are in Christ. But our position is righteous because he has forgiven us. And Isaiah's many beautiful messianic prophecies display this picture, as Isaiah says in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Our sin creating the universal need for forgiveness pollutes and corrupts our very being before a holy God. So our sin creates the separation that keeps us from him. And yet through the blood of Christ, our sin is covered over and cast away that we might pre- be presented spotless and pure before God. 
Forgiveness has exclusively one source, and this truth is preached by the apostles in Acts chapter 4 when they say, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And this is because, for, and, um, excuse me, and can, <coughs> so can you see how from this short passage um, that we have found, um, even just the beauties of this truth, and Jesus even says the same. So Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So both of these passage, passages show that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Forgiveness is universally needed, and forgiveness has only one source, and that is through Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, forgiveness is freely offered. So take a look again at our verse for today. So it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We often speak of grace, but we do truly give thanks for God's grace Do we really see the enormity of what it has taken for God to pour out his grace when we think about these things? So I'm thankful for how this passage has laid out and flowed because there is such an easy mistake to be made here simply by starting at the wrong end. Meaning we cannot start with the riches of his grace. We have to start with forgiveness, which has to begin by acknowledging it is that what it is that needs to be forgiven in the first place. Meaning when we see the debt that it needs to be paid, then we can see a great picture of his mercy and grace in our lives. Only then will I see the magnitude of my sin, that the wages of a murderer is death, the wages of adultery is death, the wages of lying and selfishness is death, and the wages of pride in my own heart is death before a holy God. Each of us owe the trillion dollar debt. And this is the picture we need to see in order to properly see the riches of his grace, And this is grace that is abundant, and by definition of grace, it is also undeserved. Do you believe that God's grace is enough to pay the debt that you owe? So do you believe that God's grace is enough to forgive what you have done? Well, the Romans 5 says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So absolutely, where the transgression increased, where our sin increased, the debt remains unpayable, and you and I cannot bring anything before the Lord to pay it. But God's grace is enough to pay for that debt. God can pay for the debt. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but to finish the verse... It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift, the abundant and undeserved grace is available in Jesus Christ our Savior. And though my death will never satisfy my death, we know that the Father is satisfied by the Son's death and his resurrection. And how do we know? Well, it's because there is a resurrection. Three days later after he died, he rose again from the dead, satisfying and proving that he had satisfied the debt that was paid and that the Father is satisfied in Jesus Christ. And this is how we know. And that's why we can always rejoice in God's amazing grace. And then with the joy of the Lord in our hearts, 
when we have received this grace, we should then offer this grace to others because this grace requires a response. So first, if you're here today and you've never responded to God's offer of grace, again, I've already said it, but today is a great day for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And again, if you'd like to talk to someone about that, we'd love to even just talk to you right after this service. Because there's no better time than now to place your faith in Jesus Christ because God can change your life today. And you can continue to, to, in your own strength and in your own way, to live a life that you think is pleasing to yourself, or you can choose to live a life that is pleasing to God and that gives Him glory. And for someone who does want to come to Christ, the Bible says it this way. Romans 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the riches of his grace poured out freely on all who would call on the name of Jesus Christ. John writes in 1 John as well. He says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when someone receives this grace, the receipt of grace requires us to do the same. Meaning those who are forgiven, who are forgiven by God, will want to forgive others in return. In Matthew 18, Jesus taught his disciples that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when one slave, who had owed a debt far beyond his ability to pay the king, to pay, the king forgave the debt. But when that same slave was unwilling to forgive, far less of another, when this Lord found out, he turned him over to the torturers until he could repay all that he owed. And Jesus finished the teaching saying, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Well, what does this mean? This means that those who are genuinely forgiven will choose to genuinely forgive other people. That's because in Christ we have received grace, and through Christ we have the power to extend grace. When we respond to God's grace and confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive. Our relationship with God is, is no longer broken. And when we respond to God's grace by choosing to ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness to others, our relationship with other people is no longer broken. And we're reconciling with other people. And when we trust in Christ for the free gift of grace that is eternal life in Christ Jesus, we know that our relationship with creation will also be one day be restored and that we will live with him for forever. And as we remember our identity as one in Christ, we can praise the Lord that we know that we are forgiven in the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are thankful for this forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't forgive, we don't, we don't deserve this forgiveness. We don't deserve any of the grace that you have given us. In fact, as Romans and the other portions of Scripture has said today, that we only deserve death. We have a debt that is so great that we cannot pay it back. Um, but you, Lord have offered forgiveness to us, and you have paid that debt through the blood of your Son and through his resurrection. So we ask that you would 
um, continue to grow us in our relationship with you. Help us to understand this forgiveness that we might extend forgiveness to others in our lives when others sin against us and that we might um, understand more of your grace each day that we might behold your glory. And we thank you for all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.